So this is the time of the service where we usually take out our Bibles and we look at what it says. I try to explain it and apply it. Uh, We give ourselves over to this every time we meet together. Before we do that, though, we're going to sing one more time. Ryan's still at the the piano. And we're going to sing a song that we usually sing in December. We usually sing it at Christmas time. Uh, But it's, uh, oddly enough, it's not really a Christmas song. We sing this song to celebrate Christ's first coming, but it's actually about his second coming. Of course, you know perhaps what song we're going to sing. We're going to sing Joy to the World this morning. So here are the lyrics to the first verse behind me. Um, If you need the hymn book, it's on page 270 uh, in your hymnal. Um, You will remain seated. I didn't put all the repeats in in the the lines, so, you know, we need to repeat that last line three times, I think, every time. If you don't know this song, now's a good time to learn it. Okay, so, uh, (laughs) all right. Give us an introduction. We're going to sing this together, shall we? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Now we're going to stop here for a minute. Go back to verse 3. Isaac, <coughs> excuse me. Isaac Watts, who wrote this song, was uh, the lyrics to this song, was a great theologian. He was the father of English hymnody. And I want to think about this verse for just a moment here. He talks about the curse, far as the curse is found. He's thinking about Genesis 3, the curse that came upon all creation because the sin of Adam and Eve. And that curse is the foundation, the fountain of all of the sin and sorrow and thorns that infest the ground. And when the Lord Jesus comes, he's going to make his blessings flow far as that curse is found, which how far is that? Everywhere. He's going to make his blessings flow that far. He's a good thinker, Isaac Watts is. And in verse 4, he's going to invite us to wonder. His rule of truth and grace is going to be so wonderful that everyone is going to be marveling at the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. It's an invitation to wonder. So let's sing the fourth verse, shall we? He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and 
wonders of his love, and wonders of his love, and wonders, wonders of his love. It was amazing I started in the right key. That was pretty, uh, that, was, that was not bad. I was afraid there for a moment. Could have been very bad. We believe that the Lord Jesus himself is going to return to earth, and when he does, because of his rule of truth and grace, the whole world will see and know that his righteousness is glorious and that his love is filled with wonders. We believe that eternity, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, is going to be a continual and constant unfolding of glory and wonder. Uh, some of you in this room have been to Disney World in Florida. Uh, some of you have been multiple times. One of the things that distinguishes Disney World from all other amusement parks is their attention to detail. They take care of everything. Everything is meticulously planned. Nothing is left unattended. And when you walk around, you go from wonder to wonder to wonder to wonder. And if, if, you, uh, if you go enough times, you'll begin to notice not just the big wonders, but you'll see little wonders, little things that they put here and there. You might not notice at first, but there they are, and you think, look, somebody planned that. That's amazing. Now, if you multiply that by 10,000, you begin to understand what Isaac Watts wrote about us, uh, for us in this song. The, his righteousness is full of glory. His love is full of wonder. Now, uh, the song is uh, theologically astute, but it also, Joy to the World, leaves open a terrible and horrible possibility. The first verse says, uh, uh, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It's a third person command. The earth, you better receive her king. And the possibility that this song opens for us is, what happens to those who refuse to receive the king? This is a horrible prospect. For uh, the next several weeks, we're going to spend some time watching the life of the king of King Saul of Israel. We're going to watch his life deteriorate. His life's going to fall apart. And the foundational reason why his life is going to fall apart is because he has rejected the word of the Lord. We've already seen that in our studies of First Samuel. He refuses to listen to what God's prophet Samuel says. But in chapter 18... Saul's rejection gets personal. He now has a human target. Samuel had told him that because he had rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord is rejecting him as king, and he's going to replace him with a man after his own heart, after God's own heart, his neighbor, who would be better than he is. And Saul knew at some point in time it dawned on him that David was this replacement. And his rejection of David destroyed his life. Uh, what happens to people who refuse to receive the king? Uh, in 1 Samuel, the king that we're talking about is David, but you should read this story broadly from the Bible's perspective. The ultimate king uh, that God sends is the Lord Jesus. I know a lot of people who have refused to receive him. You do too, don't you? Some of them grew up in our church and some of them went on our missions trips and some of them went on our service projects and they, some of them spent a lot of time sitting in those pews and at one point in time when they had an opportunity to really make a decision for themselves, the, really the freedom to choose for themselves, they said, no. Let earth receive her king? Nah, I'm going to pass. You know anyone like that? 
The Lord Jesus actually says that it would be a lot of people. This is mind-boggling. Ray prayed about this last week, uh, something that Jesus said. Jesus said, Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. For the majority of the people, a majority of the people on this Broadway, Saul's story is a warning to us. And it should shake us should shake our complacency. Let's uh, read the Bible, shall we? Uh, 1 Samuel 18. I don't know if you've turned there in your Bibles with me yet, but let's look at this chapter of the story. This is the beginning of the fall of Saul, and uh, there's some things here that we need to look at uh, together this morning. So uh, let's read 1 Samuel 18. I'm going to read the 30 verses of this chapter. Um, Let's uh, read. You follow along as I do from 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David and had departed from Saul So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merib, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mehalah. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I'll give her to him, he said, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately 
and say, look, the king likes you. And his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. Now, to help you understand this story, I want you to see two things in the text, parallel events. One of them is David's rise, and the other is Saul's fall. They're parallel events. They happen together. They happen over a series of chapters, and there's, there's, uh, two of them are, are placed pretty parallel here in this passage. The description of David's rise is actually in this passage an argument as to why you should receive God's king. And then the description of Saul's fall is a description of what happens when you don't. So let's start with David's rise, or let's talk about why you should receive God's king. And David's rise is described here in three different ways. First, it's described in in the love of the people. Love of the people. Um, The name David means beloved and it appears like everybody loves David. Everybody loves David. Did you notice that in the text here? Uh, first of all, the text says there's Jonathan. Jonathan loves David. Verse 3 says, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Here's one of the great friendships of the Bible. We need to talk about this in greater detail. We're going to in a few weeks. In particular, I want to talk about the charge that some have made more recently that this is actually a covert homosexual relationship in the Bible. Um, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Uh, what's happening here is this is a great friendship, a covenant between two men. Uh, Jonathan uh, initiates this because he sees in David a kindred soul. And he acknowledges that by giving David his royal robes. Actually, in this passage, aren't there? Um, David gets royal clothing twice. Saul tries to clothe him in armor, to send, his armor to send him into battle. And now Jonathan clothes him in the prince's robes in the time of peace. Um, I don't know if Jonathan realizes this or not, but by giving David his robes, he is, he is in effect acknowledging, you're the rightful prince. You're the rightful heir. Uh, Jonathan will actually come to accept that, acknowledge that, and applaud that part of God's plan. But here he's just expressing this out of his love for David. Verse 16 talks about love too. David is loved by the whole nation. Verse 16, all Israel and Judah love David because he led them in their campaigns. He's got Jonathan, now he's got the whole nation loves David. Um, They love him because he's doing what Saul should be doing, leading the nation in battle. Verse 20 talks about Michael and her love for David. Everyone loves David, which really must have bothered Saul. Can you imagine um, one of my children, 
and you're going to be shocked to hear this, one of my children does not like Star Wars. I know some of you are looking at me that way. Sometimes it just happens. You just you don't you don't plan for these things, but it just happens. And whenever we sit around and we talk about Star Wars, um, it, it only it only increases the fervor with which this child objects to Star Wars. Sometimes we'll talk about the brilliance of of the movies and this story, and all this child wants to talk about is Jar Jar Binks. And well, we have to concede, yes, okay. Uh, but, but sometimes we move from there into uh, irrational objections, silly objections that make no sense. That's, uh, that's what's happening with Saul here. Everybody loves David. All they talk about is David. I hate David. Uh, it happens with people who reject Jesus too. Objections to him become more and more and more irrational. Uh, the description of David's rise here begins with the love of the people. It continues with his success on the battlefield. Look at verse 5. It says, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Um, verse, uh, well, I already read verse 16 uh, because of his success. Well, verse 15. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Uh, verse 7, we'll go back there. The, the, the women dance and sing, Saul is slain his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. He's winning and winning and winning, and, and not like the president claims it, but he's actually winning. He's winning, winning all the time. Uh, verse 30 actually ends the chapter. Uh, the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. It's a, at that, that phrase, his name became well-known, is a deliberate contrast to verse 23. David says, I can't marry into the king's family because I'm a poor man and little known. Oh, but, but David, in your battles, you became well-known. Verse 5 is important in this. I, I read it a minute ago, but it says, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful. That word, successful, is related to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 29, verse 9. Listen to what Deuteronomy 29 says. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. The word prosper is the same word that's translated successful here in Hebrew. Same, same word. David is being successful on the battlefield. Why? Because he is a covenant-committed follower of God. He's filled with the Spirit and he's following the covenant that the Spirit has given the nation of Israel. And, and the blessings just come and come and come on this man. This passage sets us up for expectations that any king in the world who's going to rule like David will have to demonstrate a supernatural relationship with the Spirit. Do you understand why the Gospels place so much emphasis on Jesus and his relationship with the Spirit? Because David has demonstrated this Spirit-filled life. Then there's uh, this uh, success that takes place in the battlefield with this bride price, the grisly part of the passage. David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines, verse 2017, and brought 27, sorry, verse 27, brought back their foreskins. They counted out oh, the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Uh, now, this is a grisly. Um, brutal. Um, 
back in this day, it was not uncommon when you would kill a soldier that you would cut off a hand or a head and you'd pile them up so that you could count the number of enemies that you had slain on the battlefield. It's brutal. Except, I was thinking about this, what distinguishes this culture is not being brutal as if ours is not brutal. It's just that our brutality or the brutality that we tolerate is different than the brutality that they tolerate. So, if I could say, it's easy for us to read this and think what, what, what uh, Neanderthals these are. Except, we do strange things in our own culture. This is a little bit of a tangent, I suppose. There are people in the world, a lot of people in our country, who inject poison with needles into their face, the muscles in their face, so that they don't have wrinkles. They put that, that poison right in their face. Or, well... We take knives, we, we put our young women to sleep and take knives and cut them apart and insert plastic bags into their bodies so that they can have more pleasing shapes to us. This is brutal. We use vacuum cleaners and we suck out unborn babies from their mother's wombs. Might I suggest to you that the brutality here is, does not distinguish them from us. What distinguishes us from them is the sort of brutality that we tolerate in our culture. Well, that's a little bit of a tangent here. David is, is uh, amazingly successful on the battlefield. Now, the third element here of David's rise is his deliverance from Saul's attacks. His deliverance from Saul's attacks. There's three of them that are mentioned here. Uh, the first one's in verses 10 and 11. He throws a spear at him twice and he misses. I don't know. If I threw a spear at you, you're probably going to survive. All right? But Saul, he's a warrior. And he misses him twice. What did David, why was David hanging around long enough that he gave Saul the chance to throw it twice? That, that mystifies me. There's that attack. He survives. God must be with him. God must be with him. Then he survives attacks that Saul tries to arrange through the Philistines, mostly through the daughters. Verse 17, he reneges on the deal that he had made, the announcement he'd made, whoever kills Goliath will get to marry my firstborn. Well, he kind of reneges on that a little bit. He says to, to, uh, to David, I'll give you Merib. Um, go fight for me bravely. Well, he already, he already had. He already killed Goliath. You're kind of renegotiating the deal here. But he's, he's thinking to himself, well, let the Philistines get him. Part of the reason that he, he set the bride price at uh, foreskins of the Philistines. Let the Philistines take care of them. Then there's a third attack. It's very subtle. It has to do with the word snare in verse 21. Um, the word snare, it, 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 Saul says about his daughter Michael, I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him. What a peach of a father, right? Uh, the word snare is used two or three times in the law of Moses to describe what happened to the nation of Israel when, when uh, foreigners with their idols were, were near them and the idols became a snare to, to the nation of Israel. I, uh, Michael is apparently not as devoted to Yahweh, the, the, the God of Israel, as, as David is. She has idols. In fact, we're going to read about one of them in chapter 19 when we get there next week. And Saul says, well, let's, let's let Michael marry David and maybe she'll trip him up in his devotion to Yahweh. She'll become a snare to him because of her devotion to idols. 
In all three of these attacks, Saul fails. In fact, all they do is they set David up for success. He has more and more success. Here's one of the wonders of the Bible. It's a consistent theme. We will follow Jesus in this world, and it will be a world that opposes us. Opposition in this broken world happens, and it's normal. But God uses it to help his people. He uses it to refine them, to strengthen them, to bless them. He uses the opposition of the enemies of his people to uh, uh, accomplish his purposes. This is something that we need to think about, and we will think about more even as we see David's life uh, unfold in the following chapters here. Uh, David wrote about this over and over and over again in the book of Psalms. Ray mentioned this too when he was praying. Uh, this is the, the seedbed from which the Psalms come. My enemies, they're lying about me. They're plotting against me. They're, they're cheating me. What am I going to do? God protects David. That will come up more in, in chapter 19 even. But, but it doesn't mean that David's life is a walk in the park. He is often desperate and calling out to God. And that, as far as I can tell, is quite normal for the life of a follower of Jesus. We, we sang songs about that this morning. So we sang, Whate'er my God ordains is right. That song isn't a powerful song because it's sung by people whose lives are nothing but rainbows and unicorns. The power of that song is actually encapsulated in the fact that people, the people who sing that song have been through hellish experiences. Uh, this is not a sign of, of God's abandonment of David. It's not a sign, this opposition, is not a sign of God's abandonment of us. Or the fact that he's not going to use these things uh, or ordain these things for our good to accomplish his purposes. Happens all the time in the Bible. Think about Joseph. Actually, there's a number of parallels between Joseph and David in this passage. Uh, uh, Joseph is his father's favorite and he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He rises to preeminence in Potiphar's house and is sent to prison through the wilds of Potiphar's wife. He is... Successful, that word is used a lot in Genesis, successful in the prison and forgotten by the baker. Until finally he rises to become the second most powerful person in the whole nation of Egypt. See this? God using this opposition to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. The supreme example, the most significant example of this, of course, in the Bible, is the cross itself. The Jewish leaders, the Roman, Roman government, the powers of hell arrayed itself, themselves against the Lord Jesus, plotting together to crucify him. The apostles prayed about this in Acts chapter 4. They said, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is all according to God's plan. His death on the cross the answer for our sin, a plan he formed before the foundation of the earth. And, and he designated these plans and designed these plans and, 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 and he decimated the plans of his opponents when he raised Jesus from the dead. We're going to read about this opposition. David's rise is amazing. It, it doesn't come easily in David's experience. For God, it was no problem. For David, hard. Romans 8.28 really is true. And it's affirmed all the way through the Bible. God does work out everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And learn that in David's life. That reality in David's life is why reading the Psalms is so comforting to you. 
why it's so helpful to you. Peter Leithard said, we'll find this out in the weeks to come, I think, that uh, we'll probably learn more about following God faithfully from David's encounters with Saul than we will about David's encounters with Goliath. Why is that? Well, uh, Goliath is big and scary and mean and evil. What's an Israelite soldier supposed to do to someone like that? You cut off his head. But Saul's the Lord's anointed. Saul's David's father-in-law. He's the king. He's worthy of David's loyalty. And he's manipulative and paranoid and insecure. I bet that's a lot more like the people in your life than Goliath is. You probably have more Saul's in your life than Goliath's. People you have to face, people you have to deal with, to whom you probably owe some sort of loyalty, and, and they're paranoid and insecure and manipulative. What do you do? Does it matter to God's plans what they do? Absolutely not. Why should you receive the king? Well, let me tell you. You should receive the king because Jonathan Edwards said this of the Lord Jesus. He is altogether lovely. The Lord Jesus is loved by people from all walks of life. He is that wonderful. Samuel is describing in chapter 18 all that David, Jonathan loves David and Michael loves David and the whole nation loves David. We could talk about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has answered the prayers of African tribesmen and uh, uh, South American cowboys and Chinese peasants and uh, German doctors and there's all kinds of people all over the world who say of the Lord Jesus, oh, he is worthy of my adoration. Why should you receive the king? Because he is victorious at every point. At every point, he emerges victorious. Well, I started the sermon by talking about Saul. We haven't even gotten to Saul yet. Let's finish by talking about Saul here. What happens when you refuse to receive the king? So, In David, we see this idealized soldier. We love David. He's excellent. He points forward to the Lord Jesus. Saul says, no, no, no. And what happens to Saul? Well, there's four things that happen to Saul here in this passage, and I want to show them to you, four responses, things that infect his life. But the first, actually, before we talk about this, we should realize that this is a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual issue. And Saul knows it's a spiritual issue. Verse 12 says explicitly, Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. This word depart reminds me of 1 Samuel chapter 4. Oh, several weeks ago we talked about this. You remember? Uh, departing. Uh, there was a day, mm, long before David was born, there was a day when Eli the priest, was the high priest, and he was not following God faithfully. His sons were not following God faithfully. And, and God um, judged the nation. And one day, Eli the high priest died. His two sons were killed in battle. The Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, was captured by the Philistines. And uh, um, uh, uh, one of the son's wives, Eli's uh, daughter-in-law, gave birth to a boy. And she named the boy on that day, that terrible day, she named him Ichabod. The glory has departed. We see what happens in Samuel when God's glory departs. It's terrible. And God has departed from Saul. Uh, 
Bill Arnold says that in this passage we actually see a conflict between Ichabod, the glory has departed, and Emmanuel, God is with us. Over and over and again. Over and over again in the passage, the Bible says that, that the Lord was with David. He's with David. He's with David. So we have Ichabod and Emmanuel fighting it out here in these chapters. Uh, Clearly, this is a spiritual issue. Verses 10 and 11 tell us that it's a spiritual battle because Saul has this evil spirit that's troubling Saul and he raves. My translation says prophesies. Uh, that's the most common translation of the word. But this is an evil spirit. So it's, it's not, he's not giving divine revelation. He's raving, raging. I wonder if this is how Saul's, spirit, uh, Saul's servants knew that this was an evil spirit because of what he's saying. David's sitting there playing the lyre to calm him down, singing probably some of the psalms to, to soothe Saul. This is a spiritual issue. It's important to remember that this is a spiritual issue because some of the people that you know who have walked away from Jesus or won't come to Jesus really bewilder you. They bewilder you because... You've made good arguments to them. Or you've lived a good life before them. Or you've pled with them uh, sincerely and, and wisely and fervently and they have no interest at all in coming. They don't wonder in His love. They don't see any glory in His righteousness. But this is the realm of the Spirit. You cannot control or manage the Spirit. That's why we are a praying people. And sometimes we're tempted to try. Um, sometimes um, I see advertisements for seminars where, where, you, can, where you can go to and learn how to grow your church and, 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 and the secrets are you just need to have the right lighting. You need to set the right tone. You need to sing the right songs and, and the people will respond. 50 years ago, it was you just need to sing one more verse of just as I am and they'll come forward, right? right? Uh, but the problem is not an emotional problem. It's not an aesthetic problem. It's not a mood problem. This is a spiritual problem. That's why we're a praying people. I have a suggestion for you this week, if, if you have a, a, a moment here. Uh, VBS is next week. The Christian Education Committee has worked and planned for a great day. I think it's going to be a great day. A lot of effort. Now, what would happen if our church, what might happen? There's no guarantees about this, right? But what might happen if our church committed as much time to praying for VBS as they have spent to planning and preparing for VBS? Did you notice these clouds in the windows? that Jenna Rhodes made. It's wonderful. It's raining in here. It's beautiful outside. It's raining in here. She's getting ready. How long do you think it may, took Jenna to make those? Right? Um, they're beautiful. They're on the window. It's, it's wonderful. I think it's great. Do you know what? They're not going to be able to bring any children or parents of Jesus in and of themselves. They're there because they say to every child who walks in this room, we are prepared for you. We've been looking for you. We love you. And, and we, we love you, so we've prepared for you to come. We're excited about you being here. But in and of themselves, the, no one's going to walk in and say, look at the clouds. Jesus, I come, right? No, it's not going to happen. What if, what if you spent time this week, yeah, Tuesday, 
and you prayed this week for VBS, for the teachers and the leaders and the kids that come, what if you prayed this week for as long as it took Jenna to make one of those? Right? Um, I'm not sure what God might do, but, but you know, we, we're not trusting in clouds. We're calling down heaven. Because this is a spiritual issue. Now, let's talk about what else is going on in Saul's mind and Saul's heart here. What happens to those who refuse the king? This is not a comprehensive list. It doesn't show up in everybody's life, but here are some things that we see Saul falling apart. I'm going to go through them quickly, and then I'm going to talk about what they have in common here. So, first there's anger. uh, Anger. Saul was very angry, verse 8 says. In chapter 11, Saul is angry about the Ammonites oppressing the people of Jabesh-Gilead. But here in in verse 8, he's angry because he's not getting his due. Um, hmm. He's very angry. Um, Anger. Notice here, next in the passage, we want to talk about envy. Actually, I don't have a word, a verse to go with envy, but Saul is clearly jealous. He's envious of all the acclaim that David is receiving. Why? They're saying that about David, uh, tens of thousands and only thousands of me. He hates David for this. Third here, fear. Did you notice that? How, uh, everybody loves David except Saul. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Verse 15, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Verse 29, Saul became still more afraid of him. Saul's afraid, which is strange because it's completely irrational because David is loyal to Saul, completely loyal. Over and over and over again, he demonstrates his loyalty and uh, Saul is just afraid, afraid of him. Finally here, manipulation. Manipulation. All these things marking Saul's life. When it comes to David's marriage to Michael... We get an up-close look at this palace intrigue. So the servants go talk to David, and then they go talk to Saul, and, and Saul tells them what to say, and they go back to David, and they say it. Saul's plotting here, right? He's manipulating the circumstances. Um, it seems a bit clumsy, a little bit ham-handed, even though he was kosher, but it's ham-handed here. Saul, it doesn't seem like he's really cut out for these tactics. He's trying to manage the circumstances of his life and David's life in order to fix what he thinks is wrong. Now, uh, do you recognize these traits in anyone? Maybe they're not there at all at the same time or in the same measure. You have to know somebody pretty well to see them. What do these things have in common? Uh, Well, one of the things I think is interesting is I'm reading through the Gospels and the New Testament, and, and, and so many of these things show up in the Gospels when Jesus appears in the scene in the minds and hearts of the Pharisees. This morning, I was reading from Mark chapter 12. Jesus goes into the the temple and he cleanses the temple. And the text says that all of the Pharisees were afraid of him. Uh, uh, In Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica and people become followers of Jesus. And and the, the text says the Jewish leaders were jealous of Paul and what he was accomplishing. These emotions that we see in Saul, you see again rolled over in the Gospels in the book of Acts when the Lord Jesus comes. The reason that that Saul is threatened here, I think about this, the reason that Saul's responding this way is because he feels threatened by David. David is a threat to him. He's the new king. I don't know when he figured it out. Some point in time he did. And he's just, David is a threat. 
I wish I could say the same. Well, I'm not sure if I wish I could say it or not, but can I tell you this morning that the Lord Jesus, I have no apologies for this, is a threat to you too? He's a threat to your establishment of your own identity. He's a threat to your own independence. He's a threat to your assertion of your right to do what you want and be who you are and define yourself. The Lord Jesus is a threat. Except, make no mistake, he's a threat to you like a parent is a threat to a child who's trying to stick a knife into an electric socket. He's a threat to you like a lifeguard is a threat to you at the beach when you're out caught in the waves. He's a threat to you like that fence that Chickie's Rock is to keep you from falling over the cliff. That's what kind of threat the Lord Jesus is. He's a rescuing and redeeming threat. The thing I notice about these four things, Saul's anger, his jealousy, his, his fear, his manipulation. You know why Saul's doing this? It's because Saul is absolutely alone. He's got nobody to watch out for him. David in Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. I shall not want. And he, he lists all the things that, 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 that God does for him set the table before me in the presence of my enemies. Saul doesn't have that. He doesn't have any, a God who's looking out for him. He doesn't have anybody speaking God's word into his life because Samuel's gone. He's rejected the word of the Lord. He doesn't have anybody protecting him from his enemies. He doesn't have anybody uh, to comfort him and to encourage him and to rescue him. Saul is all alone, and that's why all he has is he has his own ability to manipulate circumstances and his own anger and his own fear and his own envy because he has no God to care for him. I, I understand why he's so upset, why he's so jealous, why he's trying to fix things. Do you recognize that in anybody's life? Do you see any of these things in, in, in your life? Hmm. What the, all these things have in common is that, that they are in part a refusal to yield, a refusal to submit to God's own authority. If you want to see the glories of Christ's righteousness, if you want to know the wonders of His love, you have to yield God does not use his power to abuse people. He uses his power to rescue people. That's why we call people to believe in him, to trust in Jesus, to yield to his cross work. It's an invitation to receive your king. And you know the promise? Isaac Watts knows this. What that promise is for us? Joy, joy, joy. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we come before you today and we thank you for this story. It is disturbing as we begin to see Saul's life fall apart. This raving, this anger, this manipulation, it is disturbing and it is disheartening. Dis- disheartening in part, Lord, because we know people who have put themselves in this position who see the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus, and they say, no, 
the warning. Sober us by it, we pray this morning. Help us as we see Saul's life fall apart and and David move on and and prosper and and success. Help us to um, see through him to his great son, the Lord Jesus. And help us that we, um, not making Saul's error, would find joy in your anointed king. Fill us with joy. Save us from complacency. These two things we ask as we read this passage of Scripture. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.